All right. I think I'm all set here. If everyone would turn to Philippians chapter 2, that would be great. We are going to read verses 12 to 18 this morning. Philippians 2, verses 12 to 18. Turn there. So listen carefully as this is the word of God. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. As always, we need it now more than ever. Thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. Lord, we know that we need to do more than just understand your word. We need to live it. And it's easier to understand than it is to put it into practice. So we ask your Holy Spirit to help us not only to understand and believe this truth, but also to live it out. So we pray, speak now through Philippians 2, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Well, American history uh, has a host of men and women who would be profiles of courage. And if I was to pick just one, it might be President Theodore Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt, also known as TR, was known as a man of bravado. His Wikipedia entry says he embraced a strenuous lifestyle defined by robust masculinity. He was known as a man of high drama. He loved heroism and he embraced that sort of persona. He made that part of his personality. He was not in the military but maneuvered his way into the military during the Spanish-American War in the late 1800s because he wanted to experience valor in battle. He ended up leading a battalion of Rough Riders on San Juan Hill in the moment that would make him famous, and that's when Teddy Roosevelt became a household name for many Americans. But there's a hero behind this hero. A hero who actually gets us closer to the heart of biblical sacrifice. And it's not President Roosevelt, the one we know as Teddy or T.R. or Junior. Actually, it's Theodore Roosevelt Sr. It's Teddy Roosevelt's father. Except for a few biographies, he's generally unknown to the American people. But it was Theodore Roosevelt Sr who gave his life 
his energy, his strength for Theodore Roosevelt Jr. He was a follower of Jesus as best as can be gathered from the records. And as a matter of fact, Theodore Roosevelt Jr. was a very sickly child. He was plagued by debilitating uh, asthma that constantly threatened his breathing. And especially back in the 1800s, it was a life-threatening ailment. Um, and so Roosevelt Sr. would carry the three-year-old, then the four-year-old, and then the five-year-old, Roosevelt Jr., through the hallways of the Roosevelt home all night long. So the Roosevelt Jr. would be kept upright and comforted uh, by the warmth and closeness of his father. And by staying upright, his windpipe would stay open and the fluid that would collect in his lungs uh, from the asthma would have some sort of outlet and he could breathe. It was Roosevelt Sr. and his night after night after night care of Roosevelt Jr. that gave Jr. the opportunity to live such a life of greatness. Jr. became Assistant Secretary of the Navy, then a war hero, then Governor of New York, Vice President, and after the assassination of William McKinley uh, at the age of 42, Theodore Roosevelt became the 26th President of the United States. And to this day, he remains the youngest president ever at the age of 42. But with all of his fame and his accolades and the familiar nicknames of Teddy and TR and Junior, the immense popularity that he had, probably the most well-known American of his day, he never got the nickname that his father had. And you know what they called Roosevelt Sr.? They called him Great Heart. Great Heart. That name comes from the book Pilgrim's Progress. They said that Roosevelt Sr. was a great heart. And after Teddy outgrew his asthma and no longer needed the constant care of his father, Theodore Roosevelt Sr. went on to sacrifice for the unseen and the marginalized of New York City at the turn of the century. It was the sacrificial courage of Philippians 2 is much more like the courage of Roosevelt Sr. than Roosevelt Jr. It's the courage of sacrifice in hidden, never to be unknown to history ways. It's the courage of sacrifice that's exhibited when you would love to be able to sleep through the night, but you no longer sleep through the night for the sake, in the case of this story, of your son. It's sacrificial courage that gives one a great heart. That story makes me want to be a great heart. I hope it instills that in you too. And I hope you're getting a picture of what it means to be a great heart in this life. One who has the courage to sacrifice energy, strength, reputation, finances for the cause of something greater. In the book of Philippians, it's the courage to sacrifice for the sake of knowing Jesus, for the sake of serving the church, for the sake of loving others deeply. But to be a great heart, as the Apostle Paul teaches, who was a great heart himself, means that we must be in deep relationship 
deep knowledge, deep understanding of the greatest heart. To be a great heart in this life, and any human can be a great heart in Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, means having to bond with the heart of Jesus, the greatest heart of all. For every hero, behind him is another hero. For every great heart, behind him is the greatest heart. The courage of sacrifice comes from living a life that is Jesus always and Jesus close. And that's what Paul's trying to get at in Philippians uh, 2.18. So, or 2.12 to 18. So let's turn there now. Uh, if you haven't gotten there yet, Philippians is in the middle of the New Testament. And those four small letters that follow Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and if you have a hard time remembering that, just go with Gentiles, eat pork chops, and you'll get there every time. And so in our text today, we see that the courage of sacrifice begins with the sacrifice of holiness. The sacrifice of of holiness, verses 12 and 13. We've come to a new part of the book this morning, and it begins with the word, therefore. And since you're all good Bible scholars, you know that when you come across the word, therefore, you're supposed to ask the question, what's the therefore? Therefore. Why is the author saying, therefore? And usually the answer is that he's pointing back to something he's already explained, and he's about to give you further counsel based on what he's explained, and that in fact is the case in this passage. The Apostle Paul started the whole section of this book back in Philippians 1.27 with this huge exhortation to only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, you're to live a life that fits the gospel. The whole center section of this letter has to do with that theme. The call to holy living, the call to holy conduct, the call to become more like Jesus. In fact, Paul illustrates that call with the humiliation and exaltation of Christ in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, which Frank laid out for you last week. And in that passage, Paul showed the mind of Christ, which was seen in a life of humble, obedient service. Humble, obedient service displayed in his humiliation, even enduring death on the cross, and humble obedient service displayed in his exaltation, where he's given the name above every name and sits at the right hand of God the Father, ruling the world by his word. So Paul paints this picture of Jesus' humble obedient service in his humiliation and his exaltation. And now here in verse 12, he says, therefore, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is one of the most important passages in all the Bible about sanctification. Now many of you know sanctification is a technical term used to describe what it means to grow in the Christian life. It means we're being made holy. And there's no question that holiness is one of the central themes of the Bible. The word holy occurs more than 600 times in the Bible. 
more than 700 times when you include the derivative words like holiness or sanctify or sanctification. You can't make sense of the Bible without understanding that God is holy and this holy God is intent on making a holy people to live with him forever in a holy heaven. The whole system of Israel's worship revolves around holiness. That's why you have a holy people, the priests, who wear holy clothes in a holy land, Canaan, at a holy place, the temple, using holy objects, celebrating holy days, living by a holy law, that they might be a holy nation. But then in the New Testament, we are also called to be holy. First Peter chapter one, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So our holy God sets us apart to live in a way that reflects, however imperfectly, his holiness. Now I'll be speaking later this afternoon at the particularization service for King's Cross Presbyterian Church in Ashburn. And that means they're no longer going to be a mission church. And um, so this afternoon we're going to ordain three elders and five deacons there. And I've been asked to give the charge uh, to those men. And so what I'm going to talk about is holiness and the setup crew. Because those things naturally go together. So here's a small excerpt. You're coming into a sanctuary, which literally means a holy place. It may look like an auditorium, but when God's presence fills this place, it becomes a sanctuary. It's a place where the saints, holy ones, come to be sanctified, made holy, by worshiping the sacred, a holy God. A holy place for holy people to be made more holy through the worship of a holy God. So it's not your job, it's your calling to make sure this is a holy place. Honoring to God, suitable for worship, a place that makes us think, I'm coming to meet with God, to build a relationship with God, on holy ground and that's why this is a sanctuary it's your calling to keep it that way so when we say set up you need to hear holiness hopefully they will so when christians talk about sanctification we usually mean something like the process of growing in godliness or growing in holiness and for centuries theologians have distinguished between justification, that one-time declaration that we are righteous, and sanctification, which is the ongoing process of becoming righteous. But when the New Testament uses the verb to sanctify, or the noun sanctification, it regularly refers to the saving work of God that is already true of us because we belong to Jesus. Now, according to Hebrews 10, we were sanctified once for all through the sacrificial offering of Jesus Christ. Elsewhere, the saints are those who have been sanctified. It says that, 1 Corinthians 1, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. You could translate that to those made holy in Christ, called to be holy. Paul closes uh, that chapter, 1 Corinthians 1, uh, verse 30, by saying that when we're united to Christ by faith, 
He says, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. That means every Christian is sanctified. We're already set apart for holiness. Now, some theologians call this gift of holiness through our union with Christ our definitive sanctification. But this definitive sanctification doesn't eliminate the need for continuing progressive sanctification. So in Christ, every believer has this once and for all positional holiness that we call definitive sanctification. And out of that new identity, every believer is commanded to grow in that ongoing for the rest of your life process of holiness that we call progressive sanctification. In other words, sanctification, uh, uh, being sanctified is what we are and, and sanctified is what we're becoming. And see, this is the challenge because we live in a fast-paced world, fast food, microwave, internet culture. And sanctification is a slow process. And we're drawn to mega conferences and flashy events. And God is calling the Christian, every Christian, to this day in, day out process of growing in Christ-likeness. And it's easy to show a spark of enthusiasm, you know, at a retreat or a conference. But it's a whole nother thing to live faithfully and consistently when no one is watching and when no one cares. Obedience is us working out our salvation, having the desire and willingness to obey what God is working in us. And following this command, Paul is encouraging the Philippians that they aren't called to obey in their own power. He essentially tells them in these verses, hey, it's God who's working in you, and he's enabling you both to desire and to work out his good purpose. And Paul says this about himself a number of places, uh, one of which is in Colossians 1. He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Now this is given to us as a massively comforting truth that underneath our work, is God's work. That as we strive, labor, and toil to be a great heart, working within us is the greatest heart. And the comforting part is knowing that we're not alone in this work. It's not totally up to us. God is at work in you, and he's accomplishing his good purposes in and through you. So then, what does it look like when we read here, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. While it certainly means living like Jesus, Paul moves on to describe the attitude that one should have as he or she obeys Christ and pursues holiness. Following Jesus involves following him in every area of life. And his challenge brings us to this comparison between grumbling and shining. Between grumbling and shining. And that's the sacrifice of darkness. So we had the sacrifice of holiness, now the sacrifice of darkness, verses 14 and 15. 
says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Read, do all things without grumbling or disputing. First response, are you kidding? All things without grumbling or disputing. All things. You don't know my boss. You don't know the ridiculous burdens he straps on our backs every day. All things. You don't know what a slob my husband is and I'll constantly pick up after him. All things. You don't work in the cubicle next to Mr. I'm wearing cologne you can smell in three states. All things without grumbling or disputing. Did Paul have a two-year-old? I don't think so. Paul wouldn't survive one morning in my house with my kids. He'd be rewriting Philippians by 10.30. The all things that Paul tells us to do without grumbling are not the fun things. Nobody grumbles about having to do something fun. It's the miserable things, the hard tasks, the unreasonable assignments, the ridiculous chore that you know you're just gonna have to do it again tomorrow. The unexpected tasks, the interruptions, the things you'd rather not do, cleaning up after that person, serving that ungrateful customer. And yet, Paul tells us we're to do all things without grumbling or disputing. And we may think this is impossible given our work, our boss, our co-workers. But yet as I wrote this, you notice there's no exceptions. And I thought about Christians suffering for their faith in China or in North Korean labor camps. And yet even there, God requires his servants to do all things without grumbling or disputing. And I thought, wow, how does one do that? What kind of grace would that take? In comparison, we have it so easy. Yet how quickly we slide into complaining. So why does God give us this command? Isn't it enough to believe? Isn't it enough not to curse and punch holes in the wall when required to do something unpleasant? What's so bad about complaining and grumbling a little bit? Everybody does it. And that's just it. Everybody does it. We complain about everything. We complain about the weather and the traffic and the government. We complain about being stuck working inside when the weather's nice. We grumble about our boss, about our coworkers, about our customers, we grumble about our teens and our toddlers and our parents. It's our way of life. Some of us wake up already set to grumble. And we move through our days grumbling at a great variety of things that get in our way. And we've learned how to dress it up with nice sounding words. I'm just venting. I need to be honest. It's time to get something off my chest or my favorite, I need to share a prayer request. But God knows what we're doing. If we really think about it, we usually do too. 
And that's why God wants us to be different. He wants us to stand out against the dark backdrop of a grumbling world to be his witnesses. Do all things without grumbling. Yes, all things. Wake up with a sore throat, receive criticism, pay a parking ticket, shovel snow in the spring, host house guests, discipline your kids, change a flat tire, answer another stupid email, and everything else without one grumbling word. When we go about that ridiculous assignment cheerfully, we stand out as blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. That's what the text says. The world is watching us. And the world wants to assure itself that Christians aren't any different from them. And if we act just like them, then our faith hasn't done anything for us. It hasn't changed us. Why should they cry out to a savior if it doesn't make any difference? Why should they repent and turn from sin? Most believers, they're not out there committing adultery. Most don't steal. Most are decent, law-abiding citizens. But everyone complains. Everybody grumbles. So Paul says when we do all things without grumbling, we stand out. It demonstrates our faith. There's nothing to accuse us of. We're blameless and innocent, not only in God's eyes, but in the world's eyes. And we shine as lights in the world. And we're powerful witnesses for Jesus. When we're grumbling and disputing, remember he wrote this long before social media. He says we're living in the darkness. Now Paul's telling us it's time to sacrifice the darkness. So that in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, you shine as lights in the world. Now, to be honest, this seems like a strange segue from Paul's previous uh, verses, his previous reminder to work out uh, your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. But here's where it gets interesting. Paul is using very specific words. Grumbling, without blemish, and a crooked and twisted generation. Because Paul is referencing the Old Testament story of the Exodus, in which the Israelites, having escaped slavery in Egypt, are making their way towards the Promised Land. And they've forgotten how God has provided for them and they've gotten worried about their future and their children's future. And because they've forgotten God's promises and they no longer trust him and nor do they trust the leaders God has given them, they grumbled and they searched for a way out of their circumstances. And before he died, Moses referred to this and he said this about the Israelites, Deuteronomy 32, five. They are no longer his children because they are blemished, they are a crooked and twisted generation. Paul didn't make those words up. He pulled them straight from Deuteronomy. And Paul's use of the word grumbling takes us back to the desert, to the time between Egypt and Canaan, and we meet that group of experienced grumblers. What do their 40 years in the wilderness teach us about grumbling? Well, it teaches us that grumbling is discontent made audible. Discontent made audible. 
It's the heart's contempt escaping through the mouth. It's the sound we make when we crave something we don't have, when we fear something that may or may not be coming, and demand something we want. Look back to that time, Numbers 14, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Now, the object of our craving doesn't have to be evil, and often it isn't. The Israelites, for example, are craving food and water and safe passage to the promised land. But their desires for those good things have somehow turned sour. They wanted them sooner than God chose to give them. They wanted them more than they wanted God. And so too with us. We want a relaxing evening at home, but we get a call from a friend who needs help. We want a job that feels meaningful, but we're stuck among spreadsheets. More significantly, we want the future that we planned for and not the one that we got that we never wanted. And some voice within us says, unfair. Another voice says, it's not right. And our desires become expectations and our expectations become rights. And instead of bringing our disappointment to God and allowing his words to steady us, we let unmet desire fester into discontent. And grumbling is discontent made audible. But that's not all it is. It's also the voice of unbelief. We grumble when our faith in God's good purposes falters. Unwilling to trust that God is crafting whatever the latest disappointment Appointment, and that he's ultimately going to use it for our good, we have eyes only for the painful now. You remember what happened to the Israelites when they didn't believe, when they grumbled? They died in the wilderness, all but a couple of them. And when the Israelites finished burying the last of that wilderness generation, Moses revealed God's purposes for all of their desert trials, Deuteronomy 8. God led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. And that generation died in the wilderness. What a tragic commentary on all those graves in the wilderness, on every tombstone in that dead, they didn't actually use tombstones then, but on every tombstone could have been written the words, we grumbled against our own good. Here, Paul is using the language of Moses in order to teach the Philippians and us that grumbling and disputing is ultimately grumbling and disputing against God. And therefore, Paul's command is that the Philippians must respond to their own uncertain times and their own difficult situations differently than the Israelites responded to theirs. Paul is telling the Philippians, don't do that. Don't be like Israel. They grumbled against God. They questioned their spiritual leaders, and it brought about what? 
dissension in the congregation. What has Paul been dressing with the Philippians all along? Envy and rivalry, disputes in the congregation, division and dissension, broken relationships. And what's he saying to the Philippians now? Don't do what Israel did. Don't grumble and dispute. They didn't make it. And if you're grumbling and disputing, then your church won't make it either. It's time to sacrifice the darkness. So how do we do that? How do we get there? Well, we get there through the sacrifice of faith, verses 16 through 18, the sacrifice of faith. Paul tells us we put away grumbling, starting at verse 16, by holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, the first part, hold fast, implies effort and attention. Grumbling will rarely flee if we just sort of merely wave around vague thoughts of God's goodness. He's telling us to take specific words from God and with a ruthless intensity, hold on to them tighter than we hold on to the winter of our discontent. What words from God should we hold fast to in these moments? Well, any that confront those voices of discontent and those voices of unbelief. We confront them with the truth of God's goodness, Psalm 31, our benefits in Christ, Psalm 103, the brightness of our future, 1 Peter 1, God's sovereignty over trials, James 1. Or to stick with the context of Paul's command, consider holding fast to his promise in Philippians 4.19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Glorious riches for every need are ours in Christ. Hold fast to that word. When we trust God's sovereign hand, when we hold fast to the word of life, we hold forth to what we hold fast. And that's Jesus, who's the living word and the bread of life. When we refrain from grumbling and disputing because we trust that Jesus is Lord and the Holy Spirit's at work, we commend Jesus to those around us. We show people where life is found. This then is the work of the Christian to know that God is at work. And when that truth is embraced by faith, grumbling and disputing wither away. And in their place grows a great heart that's able to rejoice even when living sacrificially. Now in verses 17 and 18, the last two verses, Paul presents himself as a sacrifice. His desire is to see the smile of the Lord Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ. That's the reason for his service. Sitting in a Roman jail, this is again his last letter. He knows death is a clear possibility. And Paul is saying, if I lose my life here in Rome, it will be because of your faith. He's willing to make whatever sacrifice necessary to advance their faith. And then he says that should cause him and them and us to rejoice. 
Paul stresses joy so much, he saturates these two verses with four references to rejoicing. The only difference between verses 17 and 18 is in verse 17, he presents the uh, rejoicing as that which is already the case. He says he rejoices and he rejoices with them. And then verse 18, he presents the rejoicing as something that should be true for them, something they should do. You should be glad and rejoice with me. But as I wrote to you earlier this week, there are lots of confusing parts here in Philippians. You know, there's some parts of the Bible that sound awesome until I realized I don't fully understand them. And once I realized that I don't fully understand them, of course, they don't stop being awesome. But my awe is less of the wow variety and more of the um variety. Good example, Ephesians 5.18. Paul writes, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, the don't get drunk stuff, I totally understand. Tell me not to do something, and I usually understand that. I don't always stop doing it, but I understand it. It's the other part. Be filled with the Spirit. It tells me to do something, that's great. But what exactly am I supposed to do? I have no idea. How do I go about being filled? Doesn't the Spirit fill us? Isn't that His job? How do I do something the Spirit does? And as I read it, it sounds like Paul is telling me to get active about being passive. And in a way, he is. And I wrestle with that. It hurts my head. I worry it appeals more to my selfishness, to that very persuasive part of me that doesn't have to be told to be passive. But this is a different kind of passivity. It's not laziness. It's not inactivity. It's a passivity that's more about receptivity. It's more like actively receiving. Clear as mud, right? I told you, it's very confusing. But I think if you consider the differences carefully, you're going to find you're already well acquainted with the concept of active passivity or passive activity or whatever you want to call it. If you can figure that out, you realize it's basically working without striving. Working without striving. It's work out your own salvation for it is God at work in you to work in the will to his good pleasure. So time to address the big objection to these verses. Perhaps you're thinking, I thought our salvation is all of grace and completely dependent on God. You're making it sound like I have to do something. And sometimes explaining what's true about the grace of God, that there's nothing you can do to make God to love you more and there's nothing you can do to get God to love you less, leads to the false assumption that there's nothing left for you to do at all. Your life with God is all of grace, period. However, God's grace invites, even requires, your participation. The great writer Dallas Willard was fond of saying, grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. You see the difference? Grace is, not, grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. An old Oxford preacher captured this when he called us to labor to be brought near. You can hear both sides. Labor is an 
active command, gives us something to do. To be brought near as a passive stand sounds like the responsibility is God's, and the answer is yes. Both parts are true. My early Christian life was all about the labor part, not so much about the to be brought near part. Maybe that was true for you as well. Perhaps like me, you grew up in a church environment that stressed things like quiet times and service projects and Bible studies, all good things, but in such a way as to create holy homework for the Christian life. And if so, you've probably felt the difference between duty and delight in the Christian life. Now, what was missing from my own attempts at spiritual growth, and I looked at it all as a checklist, you know, and I thought I'd check off as many boxes as I could every day. And I honestly thought if I checked off a lot of boxes, God would love me more. But if I didn't check off so many boxes or none, that God would love me less. God does not love you more on your best day, and he does not love you less on your worst day. And what was missing from my own attempts at spiritual growth was the central place of the good news of God's grace as is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now imagine if Paul had simply written, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Well, that's still good, solid instruction, but there's not much good news in it. It's sufficient for holy homework. And by itself, it creates more of what it requires. But Paul doesn't end there. He doesn't just say, get to work. He continues, for it is God who works in you, enabling you both to willing to work for his good pleasure. That's the good news. Underneath your work is God's work. So let's go back to Ephesians 5.18, the verse that hurts my head. Perhaps we should think of being filled with the Spirit like we think about sailing. No, I don't actually know a whole lot about sailing. I had a brother-in-law was a sailor. Whatever minuscule things I know, I learned by listening to him. But there's a lot of work to do on a sailboat. There are roughly 60 working parts on a sailboat. Plenty of work to do. You can break a sweat. You have to stay attentive. But there's two things that you can't control on a sailboat, and they make all the difference in the world. No amount of elbow grease will control the tide or bring the wind. You can hoist the sail, but only the wind can make the sailboat go. There's plenty of approaches to spiritual growth that amount to teaching us how to row our own boat. Some will put us in a sailboat and have us just blowing deep breaths into the sail. And consequently, many of us get really tired on the way to nowhere. And that's why the sailing metaphor is instructive. Life with God is not like a motorboat where we're in control of the power and the direction. But it's not like a raft either, where we just sit back and are carried along. It's like sailing. We can't control the most important thing, the wind that makes us move. But that doesn't mean there's nothing left for us to do. We have to raise the sail to catch the wind. We have to labor to be brought near. Now, why is Paul telling us all of this? Because it comes out of the last verses from last week. He's told us what God's great purpose is, and he's telling all this so we can help bring God's great purpose about. 
But his purpose is to put everything under the Lordship of Jesus Christ so that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, as Frank preached last week. Well, do you know what God's strategy is to do that? Okay, here it is. It's the church. The church is God's strategy for doing that. He intends by gathering together men and women and boys and girls from every tribe and tongue and people and nation into his family, his house, his church, to bring all things under the Lordship of Christ. And his strategy is for you to shine as lights in the world. It's the church. It's this congregation living in faithfulness to the Bible, living together without grumbling and disputing, and living out his gospel. This is his plan for witness to the world. That's plan A. You could call it the great heart plan. And I'll let you in on a little secret. There is no plan B. That's it. His plan for bringing all things under the Lordship of Christ is this church and every church doing what Israel failed to do. And that means the most important thing for our future will not happen in Washington, D.C. It will not happen in Richmond or in the county building or in the town hall. It will happen in living with one another in peace, growing with one another in grace, growing as holy people being made more holy through the worship of a holy God. Great hearts can't be hidden from the watching world and will be used by God so that we shine as lights in the world for the salvation of sinners and the glory of Christ. God has called us to do what Israel didn't do, and that takes holiness. And for that, we need his grace. So let's pray for that now. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that once again you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Heavenly Father, we're so tempted to copy the world. We're so tempted to want to be like the world. We want to do what the pagans are doing. We want to think like the pagans think. We want to live and act and talk in ways that can be accepted by the pagans. And when we do that, we're not loving them like you want us to love them. You want us to love this crooked and twisted generation by not being like them, by not thinking like them, by not acting like them, not wanting what they want, but pursuing an altogether different purpose, the holiness that enables us to shine like lights. You want us to do what Israel didn't do. Lord, if you were not at work in us, we would despair. But because you are at work in us, we know that you will bring the work that you have begun to completion. And we need to be trained up in righteousness, though we're trusting in Christ alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel, though we have put our faith in him for our salvation, though you have changed us by your Holy Spirit and given us great hearts, yet we still struggle with sin. And we still need to hold fast to the word of life as we seek to grow in holiness. So continue to work in each of us this fall as we learn how to live lives worthy of the gospel. 
Teach us to respond with a greater trust in you and your word, and through the book of Philippians, draw us ever closer to the greatest heart of all, your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.